This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in July of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Christine Montrose has spent her career treating the most severely ill psychiatric patients. Several years ago, she set out to investigate why so many of her patients became became caught up in the legal system when discharged from her care and what happened to them in that legal system. Drawing on extensive research, as well as her own experience working in the nation's jails and prisons, her new book is Waiting for an Echo, The Madness of American Incarceration, is a rarely seen glimpse into the American prison system. It's also a damning account of uh, policies that disproportionately and egregiously punish people who are mentally ill, people of color, people who are poor, people who struggle with addiction. Dr. Christine Montrose, a, a 2015 Guggenheim Fellow in general nonfiction, is an associate professor of psychiatry and human behavior at the Warren Albert Medical School of Brown University and a practicing inpatient psychiatrist. She's an award-winning poet, author of Body of Work and Falling into the Fire. Uh, Dr. Montrose, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So, um, as you were, uh, I guess, finishing uh, your schooling and uh, deciding what branch of psychiatry to go into, you recount this early in your book, uh, you talked with an advisor, and she mentioned, uh, and you wanted something interesting, right? Something challenging, and your advisor mentioned prisons, uh, which you rejected at the time. Why did you reject that? There's a, a nationwide shortage of psychiatrists, and at the time, I, I had the rather naive view that there were so many uh, different people who needed psychiatric help and mental health treatment that why would I spend my time working with people who were incarcerated if there were so many people who hadn't run afoul of the law who needed psychiatric assistance? turned out to be a very naive view because what I found in treating mentally ill people and severely mentally ill people, as you note, is that many of them come in contact with police and serve time in our nation's jails and prisons. And often they do so for reasons that have much more to do with their symptomatology than with any kind of criminal intent. Um, so my ideas about the kinds of people that ended up in prison were, um, I think, overly simplistic. And I also um, pretty quickly realized that the patients that I treated in the hospital were the same patients that I would see uh, if I were seeing people in jails and prisons. So what you did choose was an interesting and challenging field of psychiatry. You uh, Tell us about uh, this, the intensive treatment unit. Uh, first of all, tell us what that is. Sure. So the intensive treatment unit in, in the inpatient psychiatric hospital where I work are the equivalent of the, the psychiatric equivalent of the ICU. So these are the most severely mentally ill people who require inpatient hospitalization. The patients that I see are hearing voices or seeing visions. They have extremely paranoid beliefs or they're really actively trying to hurt themselves or other people. Uh, it's it's not a dull job at all. It's one that I love and and is different and challenging every day. Um, but the, but the patients that I see are really suffering a great deal, but also offer a great deal of of um, examples of hope and resilience. You know, they've endured quite a bit and they often improve quite a bit in their care. And and, and that's an inspiring thing to witness as a physician. So, how did you come to notice that? Uh, I guess. Fair number of your patients were ending up in, in the criminal system, right? I guess they'd go missing for a while. You hadn't seen them, and uh, 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 tell us how you how you uh, learned this. All kinds of different ways, really. Um, 
partially just from talking to my patients, hearing about what the struggles had been in their lives. Some of them would be brought into the hospital directly by police. Um, often in the moment of the police encounter, um, police have to decide whether people should go to a psychiatric hospital or to jail or prison. Police are often called when people are being disruptive in the community, and, and lots of times my patients struggle with those kinds of things. They shout in the Starbucks or they charge through TSA because they have a paranoid belief that they need to get on a plane for some kind of delusional reason. And so uh, in talking to in talking to my patients, I really realized that they were having these police encounters and sometimes ending up in jail and prison. But you're right. Other times, uh, a patient would, we would, who we expected to see rather routinely wouldn't show up for a period of time. And there's a way of looking up the court system in Rhode Island and a nurse or a, a colleague would look and see that one of my patients, in fact, was, was not seeing us because they were incarcerated at the time. You uh, recount uh, in the introduction uh, contrasting stories of Henry and Robert. I wonder if you could uh, tell us about that. And the, this is often, you know, police are called in and they have to make a decision. Um, and it's a lot of ramifications whether they take them to the, I guess, the psychiatric hospital or take them to jail. This is something that we see over and over again when we talk about mental illness and how psychiatric emergencies pose challenges in our in our country. So the the story that you mentioned is one where I saw two men, one um, performing a competency to stand trial evaluation in the jails and prisons. So when I started working, in addition to my inpatient job um, in the prison and jail system, I started doing competency to stand trial evaluation. So this is when the judge or the defense attorney has a concern that the defendant is not mentally well enough to participate knowingly um, and in the court proceedings. They ask a psychiatrist in those moments to evaluate the patient to make sure that they can fairly participate. So so one of these gentlemen I saw um, perform, when I performed a competency to stand trial evaluation on him at the request of the court, uh, and he was in jail at the time. He had been jailed because he was hiding behind a dumpster in a convenience store. The convenience store had asked him to leave. He would not do so. Um, the, the fact of the matter was that he had paranoid beliefs and beliefs that he was hiding for his own safety. But nonetheless, when you're asked to leave an establishment and you don't uh, and you return, that counts as criminal trespass. The police were called in that moment, um, and they, uh, they took Henry from behind the dumpster, uh, and they took him to jail. Once in jail, he remained paranoid. He wouldn't accept psychiatric medications. And they performed something called a cell extraction one day when he would not leave his cell. This was essentially a group of correctional officers that pulled him out of his cell. And, and during that encounter, he became aggressive and actually struck uh, a correctional officer. Um, the, the charge for uh, assault on a correctional officer is a felony charge. And in the state where, where Henry was, it came with a maximum penalty of up to 15 years in prison. In contrast, I tell the story about Robert, who was another patient that I saw, but this gentleman was someone that I saw in the inpatient hospital where I work. Just like Henry, he had paranoid beliefs. The police had been called when he was shouting in his neighborhood about concerns about the militia and believed that he was a, a subject to government experimentation. 
Instead of taking him to jail, the police brought Robert to my hospital, where he also remained paranoid, refused to take medication. And one night uh, when he was was, uh, sitting in the kitchen in the hospital, he misinterpreted a sign of staff members closing some blinds as a sign that the patients were in a, a holding tank and waiting to be executed. So in the grips of his paranoia, he charged out of the kitchen, said tonight's the night that they're going to kill us all, and started attacking the staff members in the hospital. He actually hurt some of my colleagues quite badly. Two young women suffered a concussion. One of the male nurses that I work with had to have surgery on his knee from attempting to control and restrain Robert in that moment. But none of the staff members pressed charges because they really understood that Robert was acting out of a delusion and symptoms of his mental illness. Three weeks later, he was discharged from the hospital after we had been able to aggressively alter his medications, obtain some help from court to make sure that he would take those medications, and we discharged him home to outpatient treatment and care. So that example of one man who uh, was facing a decade and a half of his life in prison, and another who, after three weeks of intensive treatment, was able to return home and receive help in the community, really was a stark example for me as to the difference in how one decision in the moment of the police encounter can dramatically affect the trajectory of the lives of people who are mentally ill. And uh, you write poignantly that often it's loved ones who call the police in. You know, sometimes it's neighbors or strangers, but sometimes loved ones who they just can't handle the situation and uh, they call the police in and, and then there's that very fraught decision that the police have to make. There's no question that that happens with great frequency in our country. And the number of family members that I've spoken with who talk about moments when their loved ones are behaving in ways that cause them grave concern. You know, someone who believes that they can't be harmed and they're walking down the center of a highway. Um, Someone who believes that they might be able to jump off of a high space and survive. Or someone who's behaving in fearful ways that that cause them to be aggressive or violent. And family members in this moment often have no one to turn to, and they call 911. And in those moments, um, all too often, police are the first response. And, and that can have calming effects. It can also have catastrophic effects. People who with severe mental illness are 16 times more likely to be killed by police than people who are mentally well. And so I think there's a, you know, there's really, we're, we're at a moment of of reckoning around around policing in our country in general, but certainly um, there's a, a discussion that's really beginning and taking hold about why it is that psychiatric emergencies are met with a police response. And I think when we, you know, one helpful way to think about this is to think about how when in any other medical emergency, we send trained clinicians, we send to a car accident or a heart attack, we send EMTs or paramedics who can start IVs and administer oxygen, stabilize fractures, stop bleeding, and then transport injured people to a therapeutic facility. And there's really no reason why we can't respond in the same way to psychiatric emergencies by sending trained clinicians to de-escalate the situation and bring people who are in need to therapeutic facilities rather than punitive ones. Are there areas where that's happening? Is this being tried? 
Absolutely. We're seeing more and more of this around the country. There are some longstanding programs. There's a program called CAHOOTS in Oregon that's existed for many years. That's a wonderful model where clinicians are the first response to psychiatric emergencies. They have police backup should they need it, but they first start in a position where unarmed clinicians arrive on the scene. They have um, they're they're skilled they're skilled and trained in de-escalating psychiatric emergencies, and they also know how to connect people with resources in the community. And it's been a wildly successful program that's existed for decades. We're now starting to see those kinds of programs pop up elsewhere. So Washington D.C. is now implementing a program where mental health workers respond to psychiatric emergencies. Illinois has a program like this that they're starting uh, as well. And I think that that's really a wonderful and hopeful thing to see that also decreases the burden on police to respond to situations that can be fraught and difficult for them to handle as well and allows them to use more of their time responding to true criminal issues that they need to respond to. If you just joined us, we're uh, talking with Dr. Christine Montras. Uh, She is... A uh, practicing, um, uh, she's practicing inpatient psychiatrist and um, professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Warren Albert Medical School at Brown University. Uh, author most recently of the book we're talking about right now, Waiting for an Echo The Madness of American Incarceration. Let's take a brief break. We'll be right back. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. Our guest is Dr. Christine Montras. Uh, who is a professor of psychiatry and human behavior at the Warren Albert Medical School of Brown University and a practicing inpatient psychiatrist. And uh, she has done extensive research and, uh, of course, draws on her own experience working with uh, uh, patient, with uh, patients and inmates in jails and prisons. And uh, the new book is Waiting for an Echo, The Madness of American Incarceration. So, Dr. Montras, uh, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about the the title, "Waiting for an Echo," um, and a boy, just an impactful uh, story. You, you were at a youth facility, right, a juvenile facility, and noticed a, a, a young man uh, standing on his toilet, his neck craned to the ceiling. Uh, tell us a bit about that. So this is a a powerful moment for me when I think back about all the research that I did. I was visiting a a juvenile detention facility for 14 to 20-year-old boys. Walking through the facility, um, I was with a, a, a number of other psychiatrists, and workers there at the juvenile detention facility. Uh, and to paint the picture a little bit, um, four of the five of us who were visiting were white. The faces of all the boys that I was seeing in the facility were brown. Uh, this racial injustice really perfuses every element of the criminal justice system, and it was certainly true in this facility as well. Um, and, and on my visit there, I was told a lot about um, the various uh, programs that the facility had for the boys who were incarcerated there. There was a an auto body shop, and there were classrooms, and there was a library. Um, but but as we were meeting with teachers and social workers over the course of the day, I really felt as though uh, it wasn't. We weren't discussing the real purpose of the place, which of course was punishment. And I asked, "What's the worst punishment?" that a boy in this facility could receive. Um, And one of the social workers said to me, he can be sent to administrative segregation, which is a euphemism for solitary confinement. Um, And I said, for how long? And she said, up to a year. 
And as, as a neuroscientist, it, it really struck me to think about what we know about the, the critical period of development in the human brain in the year, in the years between 14 and 20. Um, you know, the sort of essential social development that happens, the essential neurologic development that happens, and so much of that has to do with sensory input and, and fielding situations and trying new experiences and, and connecting with peers and differentiating oneself and how much of that would be taken away if a child were in solitary confinement. Um, so I was, I was really disturbed by that prospect. But I also saw that that, was, that that kind of deprivation was not just the case for, for boys who were put in solitary. We were walking through uh, one of the, the housing buildings, which, which were called, again, euphemistically called cottages, but of course they were cell blocks for boys. Um, we were looking at the different cells, which were quite small, um, just enough room for a bunk bed and a toilet and, and a little space to walk between the two into the door. And as we looked in one, I saw, just as you describe, um, a young, uh, a teenage boy who was standing on his toilet with his neck craned the, to the ceiling, talking, uh, talking to the ceiling. As a psychiatrist who treats severely mentally ill people, I assumed that he was what we call responding to internal stimuli, that he was hearing voices and speaking to the voices or seeing visions and speaking to those. But then we continued down the hallway, and I saw another boy in the exact same position doing the exact same thing. And in all my years of, of treating mental illness, I've never seen the symptoms of psychosis manifest themselves in identical ways. So I asked the correctional officer, what are the boys doing? And he said, it's a real problem. They, they realized that if they stand up on their toilets, they can speak into the air vents and communicate with each other, and they can have entire conversations that way. And I was so struck by that moment as a means of um, boys in an extraordinary circumstance trying to have ordinary human interactions, the very normal and typical teenage interactions that, of which they were being deprived. And, and that, that, um, that image really called to mind uh, a Richard Wright quote where he talks about throwing words into the darkness. And if he heard, if he heard, an, and waiting for an echo, and if he heard an echo, throwing more words uh, to fight and to communicate. And I thought that that really personified that idea for me that those boys were waiting for an echo from each other, but also from those of us who implement policies to to put people in prison and to put juveniles in prison, and waiting for us to hear what they were saying and respond accordingly. As we go along here, I wonder if you could tell us about, uh, you, you recount the story of a gentleman who's a prison activist, you know, speaking of solitary confinement, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Five Moulimak, um, mm-hmm. and he, he writes, uh, he, one morning he's in solitary confinement, he, he served, I don't know how many years, in, in a supermax, and, and several of those years in solitary confinement, one morning he's in solitary confinement, uh, and uh, the guard comes and says, uh, you're being released. Could you tell us a little bit about that? That's it, it just, I, it, it's, it epitomizes for me, to, you know, uh, some of what's going on here. One of the things that I think 
I certainly didn't realize before I wrote this book, and I think many of us don't realize, is that 95% of the people that we incarcerate in our country are released. And so one of the things that really rang true for me over the course of my, my research was what a detriment we do to our society as a whole when we degrade and dehumanize and mistreat people when they're incarcerated. Because when we damage people psychologically in our prison system, which we do, um, and then release them back into our society, then we do so in a way that renders them less psychically well, less able to participate in our communities, less able to get a job and function within their families and become good neighbors and taxpaying citizens. And this example, to me, of Five Mualim Ak talking about being released directly from years in solitary confinement to the streets. He talks about um, how he boarded a bus and they took him to the New York Port Authority and dropped him off. And, and you think about um, the sensory deprivation, the extreme solitude of being in solitary confinement, and then being in one of the most kind of frenetic places in our country. And he talks about sinking down in a wall, uh, against a wall and going into an extraordinary period of panic, um, which any of us might do. You know, I, I think that the moment of the pandemic has really offered many of us an empathic connection to solitude and isolation uh, and lack of social interaction that we didn't have. And I have friends who have talked about how they went from being secluded in their homes to finally returning to a big box store or a group of people and how jarring that that felt. Um, I think that's a one small, tiny example of what uh, what it might have felt like for five Mualamak to go from uh, years in solitary confinement to the Port Authority, certainly a more profound example, but it gives us a chance to understand in some small way what we're doing to people when we put them in these extreme degrading and dehumanizing situations and then um, act as though they ought to just integrate back into society the way that they might have prior to their incarceration. You quote Dostoevsky, uh, this is uh, his quote, the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. So what do you think, what do you think our prisons are saying about our civilization at this point? I think they pose a philosophical question to us as citizens of our country. I think that we say that we want safety and justice from our prison system. We want people to be sent to jail or prison and to come out um, corrected. <laughs> the correctional system is supposed to render people uh, better than they were when they went in. And, and through that, we hope for justice, and we hope that our communities will become more safe. What we know, in fact, is that neither of those things are true, that punishment is often unevenly applied, uh, that those who are poor and people of color are, are disproportionately subjected to punishment when people with privilege, be it financial or racial privilege, are more apt to escape uh, actions without consequence or at least be punished much, much less severely. And in addition, just as I've said, we, we damage people psychologically in our current prison system because it's really focused on suffering. Um, and so when, if we want our communities to be safer, we don't do a good job of that um, by the way that we treat people when they're in our prison system. What we do do really well is suffering and vengeance. So I think the philosophical question is, do we really want safety and justice? And, and if that's the case, we must change our practices. 
we must have our correctional facilities be more about uh, restorative justice, more about job skills training, mental health treatment, addiction treatment, uh, education, to really meet and to really bring about change so that when people leave prison, they're less apt to return. But if what we really want is suffering and vengeance, we want people to be, uh, to, you know, to really feel the gravity of their crimes, to really, uh, to really suffer from their actions, that we're doing really well. The problem, of course, um, is that many people who are caught up in the system uh, don't belong there. So, so it's, it's one thing to ascribe to suffering and vengeance, but when you recognize there are innocent people in jails and prisons, there are people who are there by virtue of their mental illness or their addiction or by virtue of their social status or race, it seems a lot, um, it seems even more unpalatable to really say that suffering and vengeance is the path that we wish to take as a society. Um, you remind us that uh, the largest mental health institution in the country is Chicago's Cook County Jail. Uh, you, you go into a little bit of the history of how this happened, how our jails and prisons be, became essentially uh, you know, holders of uh, psychiatric uh, patients. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. This was, you know, results, um, as you recount it, uh, some well-meaning reforms, but the, the end result was uh, institutions for psychiatric patients uh, being closed down, and, uh, and now, for various reasons, uh, prisons and jails are holding those numbers of, of patients. Right, Tom, you're exactly right. So in, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, Certainly, in the history of America, psychiatric institutions ha- have a, an inglorious history. Um, some of them were quite draconian facilities. Um, without modern-day treatments, people were often treated in these sort of barbaric ways in the hope of cure and, and, and often treated in barbaric ways, just period. So, so you're right that there were altruistic influences afoot in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that really were pushing to uh, liberate people from these long-term psychiatric institutions with the idea of having people instead receive care in the community. And part of this was due to the fact that there were also, for the first time, some psychiatric medications that really treated symptoms. So Thorazine was the first antipsychotic that was developed, and suddenly people were getting some relief from their visions and voices and their paranoid beliefs. And so there was this promise that people who had lived their whole lives in institutions could now um, move back into the community and have these less restrictive um, living situations. Uh, So that was the concept of that was called deinstitutionalization, wanting to move people out of institutions and into the community. And it was an idea with a great deal of, of altruism and valor behind it. The problem was that the funding required to support the treatment of these seriously mentally ill people in the community never materialized. So you did have large groups of people released from state psychiatric hospitals. Many of the state psychiatric psychiatric hospitals were closed. But instead of having comprehensive wraparound psychiatric services for these people who had required 24-hour-a-day care, um, you had, in, in many cases, nothing or, or a real paucity of services. So suddenly we saw mentally ill people who were sleeping in parks and begging for money in street corners and, and uh, participating in these kinds of behaviors without medication where they were 
as I said, causing disturbances in the community. In those moments, we see the shift from treatment to the, what we call the criminalization of mental illness. So suddenly people were causing disturbances in ways that ran afoul of our expectation for our communities, and police were called in those moments. So we see large groups of people shifted out of psychiatric institutions, but instead of being deinstitutionalized, they were in fact what we call transinstitutionalized. They were then taken into our jails and prisons and absorbed by that institution. So um, really the best way to think about that, I think, is that they went from a from a therapeutic environment into a punitive one. And that, that still remains the case today. We still see large numbers of mentally ill people in our jails and prisons. We still have a, a woeful inadequacy of, uh, of mental health treatment in our communities and a shortage of psychiatric beds. Uh, and that results all too often in people who are mentally ill um, ending up in correctional facilities rather than therapeutic ones. To highlight this, uh, I just want to read the paragraph. Uh, you talk with John Adams, who's deputy warden at Rhode Island's Adult Correctional Institute High Security Center. I'll just read this paragraph. You say, when I went to meet with him in his office, Adams gestures out the window to the sprawling campus of brick buildings that surrounds us. When I was a little boy, these buildings were almost all mental health, he says. Now they're almost all corrections. And you go on to say the buildings are labeled differently. The people within them are the same. That's right. And I think that, that, you know, there are many, many realms that should assume some responsibility for that shift. So, so certainly the expansion of corrections and the reduction of, of state hospital facilities is one significant portion. We also see a real, um, uh, we also see a significant problem with the lack of psychiatric beds in general. There's a story that I recount in the book um, where uh, a gentleman was down at the waterfront in Portland, Oregon, and he was ment- clearly mentally ill. He had a gallon jug filled with fluid, and it was attached to a chain, and he was swinging the, the jug above his head on this chain and, and charging in different directions. It was really scaring people. Uh, and the, pe- the passersby called the police. Um, and I, I learned about this story from former police commander in Portland, Sarah Westbrook, who said that her officers arrived on the scene, and over the course of a couple hours, they were eventually able to, without the use of force, ha- uh, convince this man to get into their police cruiser. They took him to the hospital emergency room for evaluation. It turned out that there were no beds in the hospital, no psychiatric beds available in the hospital, which is um, a chronic problem as we've cut mental health funding over the last decade. And her, her quote was that the man was released from the emergency room before her officers had finished their paperwork. He returned to the, to the waterfront, resumed the activity he had been doing. Police were called again. And this time he was taken to jail. And, and one of the, one of the jail psychologists that I talked to in researching the book said that jails have an ironclad no-refusal policy. People don't get taken to jail, and, and they're not told when they're taken to jail that the jail is full and so they can't be accepted. Um, jails will always take someone. And so I think in this instance, we have to look critically also at our healthcare system and see that the shortages in meeting the needs of mentally ill patients all too often result in people ending up in facilities that are inappropriate for them. 
I don't know if it was this uh, officer or someone else uh, used the phrase, and you use this as the title of a chapter, three hots and a cot, right? That that that, that uh, at least this person, uh, from the point of view of the police, would, if, if they're in jail, they're going to be, they're going to get some meals, uh, and they're going to be observed. This is one of the most fascinating and, and troubling concepts that I came across in talking with people who were really working at this intersection of mental health and policing, that where they would say, at least I know that if I arrest this person, that he will receive three hots in a cot, that he'll have a place to sleep and have meals and he'll have access to his psychiatric medication. So that this term arose from this compassionate arrest, this idea that you would arrest someone out of compassion, that they're sleeping in doorways, they're eating out of trash cans, uh, they, they, they might, they're, they're off their medications, and at least if we send them to jail or prison, that we know that they will have these fundamental human needs met. And, and again, I, I couldn't help but think we would never arrest someone to be sure that they received their medicine for diabetes. We would never arrest someone to make sure that they were receiving their chemotherapy. The fact that we arrest people to be sure that, they will re- that their psychiatric needs will be met seems to me to be uniquely a problem related to um, the discrimination that people with mental illness face and the ways in which we fail to provide adequate treatment to them. I want to read another paragraph here. This is still at that facility I referenced before, the Rhode Island Adult Correctional Institute High Security Center. This is a Lieutenant McComb. Um, So I'll just read this. We're really good at gangs, Lieutenant McComb says to me then. We're good at assaults, but you throw mental illness in there? He pauses. These are sick men. We're designed to use force. The system is not designed to help them. He pauses again and says, everyone tries. That illustrates uh, the fact that, this, you know, these are prisons, not set up to be uh, facilities to help psychiatric patients. Absolutely true. And, and my understanding as a psychiatrist also illustrates how, uh, how difficult those environments are for people with mental illness to thrive. So um, one of the things that I talk about in the book is the fact that there's a fundamental mis- misalignment between the expectations of a jail or prison and people with mental illness. When you're in jail and prison, the expectation is compliance. They set out the rules. You're supposed to behave this way. If you don't, there are consequences to those rules. But if your brain is working in a way that you're not able to appreciate those consequences or you're not able to follow orders or you believe that they're coming from a paranoid place or you're hearing voices that prevent you from really understanding and taking in what a person is saying to you, you're set up to run afoul of those expectations. So one of the other things that one of the officers said to me in this conversation was that the the mentally ill people who are in the jails and prisons bury themselves in seg time. Again, that term administrative segregation, meaning solitary confinement, that that people who are mentally ill break the rules over and over again uh, because they're not able to comply in the same way that someone who is thinking clearly can do. And, And solitary confinement or administrative segregation is the response often to when people break the rules, that's the consequence. It's a it's a punishment that's adjudicated entirely within our prison system. There's no judge or jury that sends people to solitary confinement. It's an accumulation of 
tickets or violations within prisons that that leads people there. And and some of the correctional officers that I spoke with talked about mentally ill people accumulating days, weeks, months, even years in solitary confinement due to their inability to align with the expectations of the prison. And I think what Lieutenant McComb says there, too, is that it's an impossible task for correctional officers. You know, I, I my, the staff that I work with at the hospital and I have been specially trained to uh, work with and de-escalate situations that become volatile with people who are mentally ill. That's not the training that correctional officers have. That That's not the equipment that they have. That's not the environment that they have. As he says, they're trained to enforce order and security, and they have their methods of doing that, but those are not the same methods that ought to be used with people who are mentally ill. So I think it puts an undue strain, not just on the mentally ill people in jails and prisons, but also on the officers that we are asking to enforce the rules and regulations of the facilities where they're, where they're housed. Let's take another break. Uh, I remind you that we're talking with Dr. Christine Montross. Uh, she is uh, a practicing inpatient psychiatrist, and she's an associate professor of psychiatry and human behavior at the Warren Albert Medical School uh, of Brown University. Uh, the latest book is Waiting for an Echo, The Madness of American Incarceration. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Dr. Christine Montras. Her book is Waiting for an Echo, The Madness of American Incarceration. Uh, I wonder, there, you tell a lot of stories in the book, uh, a lot of people that you've met along the way to illustrate your points. I wonder if there's um, you know, a person or two you'd like to tell us about here that we maybe haven't talked about. Oh, gosh, there's so many fascinating people that I met, and I think... Um, you know, one that that sticks out for me um, is a, a patient that I treated who was admitted to my care with um, with suicidal thoughts. He had he had been released recently from prison, um, and he uh, he was having trouble integrating back into society. He was um, having trouble finding a job as is often true for people with a felony conviction. Uh, a lot of the connections in his family had really been damaged due to his period of prolonged absence while he was incarcerated. Uh, he had struggled with substance abuse in his life, and when he left prison, his friends were all still using, and he was trying to stay sober, so he had lost those friend connections. And it had really gotten him to a place where he was having trouble feeling as though there was value in his life, and he was feeling quite suicidal as a result came into the hospital, and over the course of his hospital admission, um, his his depression lifted, his suicidality lifted, and he began to see some paths forward for hope. But one thing that was not remitting was that he was having these, these nightmares. And when I asked him about his nightmares, uh, he recounted in some detail that they came from his time in prison. Nightmares are often a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. People who have been through traumatic events may have intrusive thoughts or or um, places that they avoid or certainly also nightmares that are upsetting where they may replay some of the, the traumas that they've been through. So I, I could imagine any number of traumas that he might have endured in prison, including assault and sexual abuse. And so I kind of gently posed a question about whether he had been assaulted in prison. He said he had, but the nightmares, in fact, were not about that. They were about the loaf. 
And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, you've never heard of the loaf doc? And I said, no. He went on to tell me about something called uh, Nutra loaf or nutritional loaf, um, which is actually a, a form of food that's used as punishment in many jails and prisons, where he described to me, and then later my research corroborated, that oftentimes jails and prisons will uh, take the leftovers from their meals, blend them up together, and cook them in a loaf pan, and then slice off pieces of that loaf to serve to detainees who are in solitary confinement or who are receiving some form of, of additional punishment. In certain prison systems, there are actually recipes for neutral loaf that include things like beans, margarine, mechanically separated chicken, um, things that that make sure that basic nutritional value is met, but are entirely devoid of anything that would taste good or even not gross. Um, And many detainees have tried to bring suit that neutral loaf or nutritional loaf is cruel and unusual punishment. People talk about not eating at all, being, you know, that they would rather not eat than than eat this food that's given to them. And and none of those court cases has ever succeeded. But I thought, you know, that was a really poignant example of how of all of the things that this young man was enduring, one of the things that really stayed with him the most was an intentionally degrading practice that we were utilizing in our country's jails and prisons, and that is pretty widespread in its use. And that was a powerful a powerful thing for me to realize that here was someone who was was able to overcome some of these really substantial losses in his life of family and friendship and and job status. But the one thing that really haunted him at night was this incredibly degrading um, fundamental human need that that he was deprived of while he was in jail and prison. Yeah, that's I haven't heard the loaf either. That's that's amazing. Um, you quote a you say a Swedish prison worker once told you that prison is sometimes good, but it's always bad. What, what do they mean by that? I love that quote. I think that there are ways in which prison serves a function sometimes, and, and we can, you know, uh, people ask me often if I'm an abolitionist, meaning do I believe there should be no prisons that exist? Um, and and I'm not a complete abolitionist, I believe, um, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of people who have been in jails and prisons and who have committed crimes, a tiny handful of those are people who I don't think can actually safely exist in our society, but it is a tiny, tiny fraction of the people that I see and certainly the people that we incarcerate in our country. Um, and so I think there are instances where prison um, operates almost like a parent giving a child a timeout. You know, it, it removes people from society um, who, who truly cannot safely exist in society. Um, but but we must acknowledge that, that prison isn't necessarily bad for the people that, that enter into it. And, and you know, I, I went into the research of Waiting for an Echo believing that I might find that my mentally ill patients were damaged by the experience of prison. But what I found when I entered these facilities was even people who begin their sentences psychologically well uh, come out less psychologically well. Um, and so so there's no question that our, our system, uh, this, as we have it today, is one that does more harm than good in many instances. 
And you say that this harms society, right? You, you say 95% of inmates will be released at some point. They're coming into the society. It's going to it's going to harm society as a, as a whole if they're degraded in prison, right? That's- that's right. And one of the really exciting and hopeful parts of the book was I, I did have a chance to go to Sweden and also to Norway to see how different countries do this differently with better results. And so I was able to visit prisons in Scandinavia that that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, had, had many of the same issues that we have in our prisons. They had violence between detainees, violence between detainees and, and officers. They had revolts and murders and escapes. And they had, most importantly, perhaps high recidivism rates. And in the 1980s and 90s, their recidivism rates were between 60 and 70 percent, which are right around where ours are at 68 percent right now. Today, however, only 20% of Norwegian prisoners are arrested in the two years after their release, which is really different than our numbers. And the way that they've brought about this change is that they have radically um, renovated and overhauled their prison system to focus on rehabilitating people so that when they leave prison, they don't return. And I think that that you know, gets back to our question of what our goals are. If we want the 95% of people who return to our communities to become, as they say in Norway, better neighbors, then we need to use the time of the sentence to bring that reality about. And I think in, in contrast to the time of to, to the concept of doing time that so many people think about in America, the the time of the sentence is used quite constructively in Scandinavia. So education, job training, substance abuse treatment, anger management training, you know, these things that that lead to uh, lead people into positions where they might be asked to commit crimes are really dealt with and and um, rectified and fortified during the, the periods of incarceration in Scandinavia. And then when people leave, they're less apt to return to prison. So I think that that's a choice that we face as a country. It's certainly one that requires a shift in our, philo- our, our correctional philosophy, but it absolutely has shown um, to reduce recidivism and reintegrate people into the community so that they can be better neighbors and taxpaying members of our society. The book is Waiting for an Echo, The Madness of American Incarceration. Dr. Christine Montross is the author. And uh, Dr. Montross, thank you so much for the conversation. Tom, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the thoughtful questions. Many cultures, one sky. As the crickets are in their August peak raging all around me, it's time to look up, look around, and get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T here. We look up to the ISS where the Russians are still active, in a good way, as they work on a European Space Agency solar panel. Denis Matviev and Oleg Martimov were sent outside on an EVA, that's an extravehicular activity, to continue outfitting a European robotic arm that had been launched to the orbiting complex in July of 2021. Before their outing was cut short, the cosmonauts had successfully installed two cameras on the elbow areas of the European robotic arm and removed thermal insulation and a launch restraint from one of the two end hands at opposite ends of the arm. Once fully configured, the European robotic arm will be used to remove and move payloads and equipment outside of the Russian segment of the space station. The spacewalk continued by Matviev lasted for four hours. And in space exploration, Artemis, Artemis 1, is on the launch pad. 
NASA's Artemis One. The rollout took place overnight on August 16th and 17th at the Kennedy Space Center. The Space Launch System and Orion capsule will be launching on August 29th. The Artemis Moon Exploration Program will be launching to the moon and beyond. For the past month and a half, the Space Launch System rocket, which is the most powerful since Saturn V that took astronauts to the moon in the 60s and 70s, has been being tweaked at the Kennedy Space Center and getting ready to launch in two weeks. Let's go down there. The Perseid meteor shower was peaking at the time. And simultaneously, a sonic boom rattled old homes in Salt Lake and Davis counties. Did you hear it? Giving people the idea that a tree might have fallen on their house or an earthquake kicked in, but it turns out it was a large beach ball of a meteor that had been peeled off on its way through the atmosphere, apparently exploding with small chunks probably falling to the ground. So if you find a green glowing rock somewhere, hmm. As we look up into the sky tonight as well, August is prime Milky Way time and along with the planets showing up now in the evening and putting on a big show of their own, the moon is having a good time. But when the moon is out of the evening sky, as it probably will be by this weekend, or it will be, after dark the Milky Way runs from Sagittarius in the south up and left across Aquila the Eagle and through the big summer triangle very high in the east and on down through Cassiopeia to Perseus rising low in the north northeast. So keep looking up, look around, and get way lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR, the translator station statewide and streaming live. UPR.org.